getting out of an abusive relationship early makes a huge difference. And I'm proud to say I did come in as a victim, but I am a survivor. Then I could see my mom. My mom was walking toward us and I got excited and it was like, there's my mom. And then he didn't stop. I'm trying to keep it together, I said. I gave in to the tears and I hated that. It, it's not necessarily the easiest process. It's not necessarily the prettiest process, but it is the most effective process. Like you can do this. I'm gonna tell you 100% you can do this and you're so worth it to do this. I'm sure losing any child is is a real arrow through your heart, but but uh, you know she was she was great. She was a, a, a friend and a family member and our daughter. It feels just as good the tenth time as it did the first time uh, to have one of your citizens that you're out there protecting walk up and tell you thank you. There is one thing stronger in me than fear, and that's my determination. Welcome back. This is Jen Lee, the creator and host of I Need Blue, Survivors Talk Surviving. Visit www.ineedblue.net for additional stories. As you listen, if the message moves you, share it with friends and family. The more we share, the more we learn, the more we can help. Please note, I Need Blue does contain sensitive topics which could be triggering. Please seek help if needed. Today, we continue our discussion about addiction. Robbie has been in recovery since September 18th, 2018, and he is proud to let you know as he should be. He is going to share his story about being born into a family riddled with alcohol and drug addiction. His childhood included foster care, at times an absent mom, and the death of two close family members. Robbie shares his journey of survival, which includes the moment he was introduced to Space Coast Recovery. From there, I will let him tell you about the one-year agreement he made with himself. My second guest today, Barbie Thrower, is the Executive Director and President of Space Coast Recovery, and she has held that position since October of 2013. Space Coast Recovery was established in 1969 and has been at the forefront of addiction treatment services in Brevard County, Florida. She is part of Robbie's journey and together with Space Coast Recovery, they are dedicated to empowering others to choose recovery from addiction. To learn more about Space Coast Recovery in Brevard County, Florida, visit www.spacecoastrecovery.com. Again, for additional information, spacecoastrecovery.com. I would like to thank both of my special guests today, Robbie and Barbie. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Jen, for having Robbie on I today. I'm the director for Space Coast Recovery. I've been the director here for a little over eight years. I had come from the state attorney's office, and that's where I thought I was going to retire, but God had other plans for me. I have a passion for drug addiction and alcoholism for the fact of I've lost two marriages because of addiction. I lost one of my very best friends because of addiction. 
So once I received my master's degree in psychology, I had to have a niche. And I decided that it was going to be in substance abuse counseling. God had his hand in all that. And here I am eight years later running this nonprofit in Cocoa. And today I have a great honor to have one of my top-notch counselors here at Space Coast Recovery. And he's going to tell us his story. My name is Robbie. I'm a recovering addict and I've been clean since September 18, 2018. Whenever I tell my story, I always say, ever since I can remember, my life has been dominated by drugs and alcohol. My first memory is being taken by HRS, um, which is now DCF, from my parents. Grew up with um, two sisters and my my older brother. The first thing I can remember in my life is when HRS came to the house and I had no idea what was going on. I was really confused. I just remember these people came in. My mom started freaking out and arguing. My dad was kind of just sitting there and they were telling us to pack up our stuff and get our clothes and the things we need. And I just knew something was wrong. And my sisters, they started to, they were kind of going along with it. For me, I ran and I hid. I think I, I said I was, I was, I ran and I hid in the closet. And I just remember them looking for me and, and I was scared. And eventually they found me. And I can remember walking down that driveway, getting in the back of that car and, and just looking out the back of the car. I remember just crying, not knowing what was going on. And then, and then we, then we were gone. So we went to foster care. We were living in Palm Bay at the time, but foster care was in was in Rockledge. My sister has better memory than I do, but the foster parent of the time, she was she was pretty abusive. Um for myself, I remember being put in the corner for extended periods of time with my nose in the corner for uh, my sister says 10 hours. I would like to think it wasn't 10 hours, but I remember it being a long time. But one thing I do remember was one time she had bought light bulbs for the house. And I, I was five. So I was five. My older sister was seven. My younger sister was two. And my brother was was nine. But I was a five-year-old kid. And I took the light bulb and I think I put it up and uh, said, you know, made a little joke about having boobies or something. And this lady had me unzip my pants, stuff light bulbs in my pants near my private and had me and taped light bulbs to my chest and had me walk around the neighborhood with light bulbs attached to my body to, to teach me a lesson. And my sister told me how she would give my little sister cold showers. And every time me and my brother would come in the house with dirty shoes on, she would make us strip down out back and hose us down with a hose. Those ones are a little more vague to me, but my sister tells me, uh, told me about it. So after spending two years in there with visitation, seeing my parents back and forth, sometimes it was just my dad, sometimes it was just my mom, sometimes it was both of them. Eventually, we moved back with my parents, and they got a house over in, in O'Galley in Melbourne, Florida, where I grew up. And a short time after we got out of where we returned home to our parents, my mother was battling with addiction, crack addiction. And we weren't in the best of neighborhoods, but the okay side of the the worst neighborhoods across US1 but the other side of US1 was very drug just drugs everywhere there was drug dealers and prostitution and guns and 
And my mom was, like I said, was a addicted to crack cocaine. And she used to, she was a great mom when she was home, right? She would be there. We had strict uh, rules. We had to be down for dinner. We all sit at the dinner table, say grace. We had to be at home by a certain time every night. And we had chores. And so there was structure. There was on and off structure because when my mom, she would relapse or or, or, or go use again, and she would go right across the street to that bad neighborhood. She, my mom received many prostitution charges over over the course of, of my life. So when we got out of foster care, I was about seven, seven or eight. My brother was around 12, and he was the only one old enough to really understand what was going on with my mom at the time. I don't know if he completely understood, but he knew something was wrong. And he would go and get on his bike and, and ride to the across the interstate, across US-1, and go try to find my mom. And so the solution of that was they decided to send my brother to live with my mother's mom, her grandmother in Ocala. She was an alcoholic. And I've never heard any, I've never heard any good stories about my grandma. Everything I've heard was just extremely bad, abusive. I heard she was in the black magic and bikers and the stories my mom would tell about her trauma about her mom it just never added up and I, I never can really ask too many questions but I, I would always think like if your mom was such a bad mother to you why would sending your son my brother to her in a time of trouble why would that be the solution but that's just a stone that's never been unturned and I don't today I don't really dig into any of it My grandmother was driving drunk with my brother in the vehicle and they hit a tree and they both died on impact when he was 12 years old. And I remember her, her and we, I forget exactly when, but we would go visit me and my sisters and her husband was very abusive and we, nobody, none of us really liked him. He used to, I, I don't have specific memories, but I just remember that guy, her husband, none of us liked him. We were all scared of him. There was nothing ever anything good came around when he was around. But this guy shows up um, at our door in Melbourne one night. It was late night. I, don't, I was young, so I don't know. And I just thought, what the heck is this guy doing here? And our, we had a babysitter at the time, which was actually our, our, another family was living in our spare bedroom, like a family of four living out of one bedroom in our house to help pay rent, I suppose. And this lady, our babysitter slash roommate, started bawling, crying, and just looking over at us. And I knew, I knew something was wrong. Why is this guy at the house? And why is he telling her this? And what is going on? My dad comes home. He's in tears. And he ended up telling us that um, our brother had passed away. And I just remember after that, for, for weeks, me and my two sisters would all sleep in my dad's room. And uh, we, they would play that, that Arms of an Angel song. I just always remember hearing it on TV. It's like a pet rescue commercial. And would play that in the arms of that song. I'm not a very good singer, but I would cry. I would like get teared up just if I heard that song in the background. Just it would like trigger the, I don't know. I was just watching like them rescue dogs. But hearing that song would, would always make me tear up. So I stopped listening to it. I don't know if, what would happen if I listened to it today, but. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Space Coast Recovery. Since 1969, Space Coast Recovery is dedicated to empowering their clients to choose recovery from addiction. So after that, um, my mom would be in and out of jail, in and out of the streets. She would always come back to the house periodically. And I used to fight for her to come back home. Like my dad would slam the door. They would argue. I'd be like, that's mom. You got to let her in. You got to let her in. And I just remember it was like on and off, on and off. And so she'd be right across the street in a, within a mile radius doing her addiction and then come home all crazy out of her mind and make all these accusations telling me that she has pictures of my sisters being raped and all this stuff and just out of her mind. And just, it got to the point where I got, you know, I got fed up with it too. Me and my sisters, like I would be in there watching TV on the couch right by the front door, by the windows. And I would hear a knock and I'd peek up and I'd always have fear that it was my mom. And if it was my mom, I'd roll off that couch and tuck myself right up under the crevice of the couch to where I actually couldn't see if she looked through the windows because I just didn't want to even interact. Because every time she came around, it was always something, some crazy accusations. I remember one time she came in and was playing the video games on the computer and she would just be out of her mind as splash water into the back of the computer claiming that they're listening or whoever, this or that, and the FBI and all that kind of stuff. And so that, you know, that's kind of the story of it, you know, of, of our family dynamic for me and my sisters growing up. My older sister took on the motherly, motherly role. She, you know, she really raised her and and one of my buddies in the neighborhood. Great friend. My best friend to this day is a good guy. Without him and my older sister, you know, they were my parents, really. I feel like without without them, I don't I don't know what would have happened to me. And that that guy will be, you know, forever a brother to me. I got into um video games a lot as a kid video games and basketball was was my life video games basketball school that's all Robbie did that's all I did ever and uh, I've liked video games a lot and I guess it's the first sign of addiction my dad I remember he threw away one of my computer games Warcraft 3 and I played it so much that I came home one day and it wasn't on the computer and I remember going out to the trash and having to dig it out the trash can and him being real mad with me for playing it too much and so that was just one thing when I look back of like an escape, you know, that I was always, I was trying to escape. I really didn't start using um, until I was 15, 16, probably, probably 10th grade, nine, halfway through ninth grade. Cause I, like I said, I was really big into basketball. I ended up getting cut from the freshman team. We had a great junior high team, eighth grade. I, uh, we had an undefeated team. We had our core guys, like we were a unit. We were the basketball players, everybody in the school, they knew who we were, you know, like that was just who we were. That was my identity. Um, we were best friends. We all did it. We did everything together. We hung out together. We played basketball together. We went out. Whatever kids do, we were doing it. And I was that was who I was. We move on to high school and the first day of tryouts, meaning there's three rounds of tryouts. I said a, a slick remark to one of the guys during tryouts because we were doing this three on three thing and I was trying to look good for the coaches and this kid just kept not giving me the ball and kept doing what I thought was stupid things with the ball. So I told him, <laughs> I told him, I said something slick. It wasn't nice. I think I just said, you suck. And uh, I turned my, turned my head over my shoulder and the, the coach was standing right there. He just shook his head and walked away. I was like, well, that's not good. And uh, I got cut 
very first cut. And there was a lot of guys out there that had no business on a basketball court that made the very first cut over me. So a couple of weeks went on and the, the JV coach walked, saw me walking through the halls in school and said, hey, Robbie Gray, how's, how's practice going? How's that freshman team going? Whatever he said. I said, are you serious? He said, what, what do you mean? I said, I got cut. First round, the very first round. He said, yeah, right. He started joking and laughing. He's like, no, really, how's practice going? I said, man, I'm, I'm dead serious. The JV coach was like, he just apologized. He was so sorry for me. He's like, I know I know how much it means to you. You're a great player. He's like, I'm going to see about getting you on the JV team and um, just don't give up and show, you know, keep doing what you do. I sat all freshman year sitting, watching kids that, watching all my best friends, all my buddies go to practice and play basketball games. And I have to sit on the sideline and just, just watch from afar. And that's when I started to, um, to drink, smoke weed. That's when I, my, my addiction first started. I just started to dabble. That might be the worst. That was a tough year. You know, that was my, like I said, basketball was my life and, and, and I lost it for that year. And you were like 15, 16. Yeah. Freshman year. And that's when I started to drink and hang out with a different group of kids. And um, by 10th grade year, I made the team, but I had resentments towards the whole organization of basketball. 10th grade year went well. I, you know, I would, and then 11th grade year, that's when it started to get out of hand. I started taking pills and things like that. And I would show up to practice high on weed and my teammates would say something to me. And I would say, you know, I'm high, but I could still beat you. And, you know, I watch what I do here on the court and all this stuff. And it was just, I was just arrogant. I was just arrogant and didn't care. And I had coaches that would tell me, hey, man, like, because I used to look back, you know, when I first started to get clean, I used to look back on my life and say, man, I wish somebody would have freaked. I wish I would have had guidance. I wish somebody would have just grabbed me up and said, this is the way. Because I felt like I didn't have that with my parents, but I definitely looking back, I definitely had that. There was people in my life that tried to pull me up, you know, tried to try to say, Hey Robbie, you know, that's not it. That's going to lead you down the back. And I, I just thought, yeah, whatever. You have no idea. I didn't, I wasn't accepting of any help. I wasn't able to accept any guidance. I had no respect for authority or any type of, or I didn't know how to accept, you know, love. I didn't know how to accept any, any type of, compassion or, or, or guidance or from anybody. It was just Robbie against the world. And that led me down a dark path. But um, I say that because before my addiction got out of control, you know, the same behaviors and the same ways of thinking, I didn't feel like anybody ever cared about me. I felt like I had to do everything on my own. That was the only way it was going to get done. I didn't know how to accept love. So throughout high school, my mom would be back and forth as she was throughout my entire childhood. Her and my dad, I think, officially got a divorce back when I was 12. We used to always ask. Their, their relationship was always the same dynamic. It was off on, off on. His fault, her fault. They both hate each other. There's two different narratives. My mom says it was all him. My dad says it was all her. You never know what to believe. Senior year, I was captain of the basketball team. The other captain of the team, there's two of us, he got injured. I put a lot of pressure on myself to make the team successful or just make us good. And and uh, I would always get on the guys during practice and want to push us to be better. And I built up all this unneeded pressure. I, I was hard on the people around me. You know, people were slacking off of practice. I'll get on them. I say that because 
it became unmanageable for me. It became something that was impossible to deal with. And you just isolate. I just isolated myself from from life, really. You know, I was on a, a level of my own that was just complete delusion. My mom got out of prison. She did 18 months in prison and she was getting out um, Christmas break of my senior year. You know, for whatever reason, like my heart was like, Mom, I'm going to I'm going to get her back home. She's going to do it this time. I'm a little more mature. I've been a couple years. I've been like, you know, she's been writing me. She'd always write and send letters. And I was like, you know what? She's coming home and she's going to be a mom. I wanted my mom home and I was willing to fight my dad about it. He, he can't he's not going to say no. And so I had that conversation. I said, mom's coming home. She's coming right here in this house. I don't care what you say. Like, this is going to we have to do this. And he was all against it because we had done this charade many a times, arguing back and forth about she's coming home. Don't let her in. That's my mom. I'm going to let her in. What are you talking about? You know, he he said, OK, look, just take her. We had a duplex. He kind of stayed on one side of the house and all his kids stayed on the other. And we kind of just throughout my entire childhood, we did whatever we want. My dad was rarely home. And when he was, he just stayed on that side. There was a wall in between it. He kept the lights on. He put a little food in the fridge. Um, we had shelter and food. But as far as structure and, and, and parenting, that wasn't there. It was just kind of fend for yourself. Um, so it was obviously the party house. But so I, I, my mom comes home, Christmas break of my senior year. And I decide, you know, I stay at home with her. I've done this before where I kind of just stay with her 24-7. And I remember, and I just remember when she was home, that we would lay on the couch, she'd rub my back and, you know, just kind of be a mom. And like, I loved that. Like, I needed that. I just remember like when she would be there and we could just lay together and just to feel that nurture, such a foreign feeling. But when I felt it, I, I knew that it was missing and I knew I needed it and I loved it. And that's my mom. So, so I dropped out of school halfway through my senior year, captain of the basketball team. And I just quit. I just never went back. And I, I think I told the narrative of like, oh, my mom's out of prison. I'm going to stay home with her. But like I said, that that wasn't the whole truth. I was I was taking Xanax and partying and and I just I was done. And it was a good it was a good way out. It made it look like, OK, that's a good reason. I, I babysat my mom, if you will. And I remember one day and this has happened many times, but you don't have to babysit. You know, I'm going to go to the beach. I'm going to go to the beach today. I'm going to get some shells. And she had went to the beach. She always did that kind of stuff. Go collect a bunch of shells, bring them home and do whatever she did with them. And I said, you sure? I said, I'll go with you. And she said, no, you don't need to go with me. I'll be all right. I promise. I love you. I'll be home. I said, okay. And she never came home. As she did it many times. If it was going to the store to get a gallon of milk or this or that, I'd be right back. You can go get some cigarettes. Gone for a month gone for two weeks, pop back up out of her mind. And that, that's what, that was, the, that was a story on and off, on and off, on and off. Relapse, streets, home, crazy at home, drive us crazy, gone, jail, back. So after I dropped out, um, that's when things started to get, to get real bad for me and, and my addiction. I started using heavier drugs. The first serious drug I did was cough medicine. And we would take that stuff all the time. Just get out of our minds. I was always looking for an escape. Because I remember I, I went to the hospital and I had to go get my stomach pumped. That was like the first real episode of 
my own my my physical problems with myself over substance abuse. It progressed into you know pain pills and cocaine and and you know as I grew up, I would always promise myself I would never do that drug. That was my mom's drug. I definitely would never do that. I'll definitely never shoot up. I'll definitely never do meth. Never. I'll never do that. That's one thing I'll never do. And every time I did that, that cough medicine that we would take all the time, one time while I was on that, and my mom was staying at the house, literally right across the street from our house, like the neighbor. She was staying with this lady. And she was over there on a crack binge. And I knew what she was doing. And in my psychedelic state, came to a revelation of, I know how I can cure my mom of her crack addiction. I'll go over there, smoke it with her, and then tell her in her face, is this what you want for your kids? And that's exactly what I did. I went over there, played a little game, said, hey, what are you doing, this, that? I said, oh, here, let me try that. And the first time I ever did cocaine, I smoked crack with my mom at 16 years old. And I don't even like to say that because I know, I know how much that hurts her to this day. And she's apologized so many times for that. You know, one time I was at the the gas station up by the house and I ran into my mom and she told me, I don't want you to worry. (laughs) Every time I, I don't know how to say this without sounding vulgar. Every time I perform oral sex for drugs, I slip a condom in my mouth. So I'm really not doing it. Look, and she popped a condom in her mouth and showed me how she would sneakily put a condom in her mouth. So she never had to have skin to skin contact with her johns. And I was like, what the, f-? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But bless her heart. You know, I, I hate to even tell this because I mean, it is my story and it's the reality of my life. And my mom is also a recovering addict and she deserves, you know, opportunity and chance for recoveries too. So I don't, it's really tough for me to say this because I don't want to hurt her anymore because she's full of pain as all of us in recovery are. And she's had trauma and her mom put her through a lot. So I don't say this because I hold a resentment or blame my mom, but this is just the reality of my story. There's one more promise that I could keep to myself. When Robbie said, I never will do this drug or that drug. I also told myself I would never be the parent to, to my child as, as my mom was to me. I can, I can still do that. I can still do that because there's a cycle. And I, and that's the one thing I did. I made that promise made that promise to myself before. And when my daughter was born, two months after she was born, I relapsed, got a DUI, and went to jail. And that's when I came to Space Coast Recovery. So I did three months in jail and then six months in recovery or in Space Coast Recovery where I had some some contact. And Barbie and Luann, bless their hearts, they would buy, they would allow me to have my newborn daughter here and buy buy her um, a jumping little thing and a walker and stuff like that. And they promoted me being a father and they loved it when Nora came and that meant the world to me. So that's what we do here at Space Coast Recovery, you know, things like that. When I took an honest look at myself, I said, Robbie, you're doing exactly, once again, you're doing exactly what you promised yourself you want to do. You, you just spent nine months out of the first year of your daughter's life, not in the house with her. Sounds kind of familiar. Sounds just like when your mom was not there and gone and back and gone and back. Sounds like you're about to do the same exact thing. And I'm not willing to do that. I won't live with myself to do that. I can't. To skip all the overdoses and the 
the the the Baker Acts and the the ICUs that I've been through through my addiction, through doing everything I could get my hands on to escape reality. I mean, we could sit here and talk about that kind of stuff all day. All the the self inflicted trauma from not being willing to work a program of recovery and just com- compounding my pain and trauma through lack of willingness to to look at myself. The self-inflicted, you know, trauma that you put on yourself is is real and it's hard for people who aren't in your shoes to understand that. Robbie is a survivor of addiction. There was a time when he didn't have hope. There was no one to listen and he started to accept substance abuse, prison, and homelessness was his life, his only choice. Space Coast Recovery was established in 1969 and has been at the forefront of addiction treatment services in Brevard County, Florida. Robbie found love, compassion, his sponsor, and 12 steps. He found the hope he was searching for. He realized he had a choice when it came to his life and Space Coast Recovery offered him hope and opportunity. If you or someone you love is struggling with addiction, reach out to Space Coast Recovery today. They can be found at www.spacecoastrecovery.com or call them at 321-632-5958. Again, that's 321-632-5958. Space Coast Recovery is dedicated to empowering their clients to choose recovery from addiction. I enjoy telling this. It's complete madness. So in the same period of time, this was right before my daughter was born. Nicole's pregnant. I'm putting all this pressure on myself to be a father, to be a good father. Can I be a father? Do I even have it in me? Has anybody been a parent to me? So am I even able? All these insecurities like that's. The fear of not being good enough to be a dad, like, was driving my life. And it drove me to relapse. Um, But one night, one day, in the midst of argument or something with Nicole, because we were both insecure, you know, young, having a child. We got into argument about something. I can't recall what it was. I just decided to to go, to get out of the house and to go. Because I have a, a good wife. Good, a good girl. She graduated college. She's good. She just walked the path her entire life. And, and I was always conscious that she was a good egg and I wasn't. So I would try my best to protect her from myself, which is madness. So in, in one of those nights, I'm, I'm high, I'm using, um, and I have no money. Started off in, in Melbourne and I go to a 7-Eleven with a PlayStation 4 and I plug this thing into the outlet right in front of the front door. And with no TV or anything, it's a video game console and you need a TV to prove that it works. But I'm out here trying to sell the PS4 to anybody who's willing to buy it. So that anybody walking, people are looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, look, it works. Hitting the on and off button, showing the disc tray works. There's no, everybody's just looking at me like I'm a madman. Like, come on, I'm trying to, you know, sell it for dirt cheap. Um, the, my friend that I grew up with that I mentioned earlier, I called him and he uh, he came and picked me up and I said, you want to buy the PlayStation? He's like, what's wrong with you? He's like, here, I'll give you some money. Keep your PlayStation. I don't know what the hell you're doing, but what do you need? I said, I need a ride to Cape Canaveral because that's where I've been living before. And I knew to get just how to get drugs there. So I went, he took me to Cape. 
So I go to Cape. I go back to my old apartment complex that I just completely compromised and got kicked out of partying with every person of every apartment. There was like 16 different little apartments there and probably 10 of them were users, drug users, or alcoholics. And I was intermingling with all of them. And I started to, to use IV drugs, uh, meth, what I thought was meth on the streets today. You don't know what it is. It could be bath salt. It could be some fabricated, who knows. And I'm doing that for hours in the laundry room, and I'm sweating bullets down there, trying to inject dr- drugs into my meth into my leg. And my leg swells up like three times the size of what it should be. And I'm just sitting there sweating bullets, delusional, out of my mind, talking to people who aren't there. My old neighbor, they knew me. They knew um, Nicole. And they called Nicole. And they're like, you got to come get him. And me and Nicole would have just argued, you know, that day. And it's still early. It's like 6 o'clock maybe. She comes to pick me up. And I'm completely out of my mind. I'm in the front seat and the passenger, but I'm ripping up the back seat, accusing people of being in the vehicle that aren't there. It's an empty car, but I'm trying to find people underneath the seat cushions in a sedan. <laughs> um, so she goes, we go to the hospital, goes inside and tells the people like, this guy's crazy. You need to come get him. And these security guards, like three big guys, they come out and they, they're like, sir, you need to come in the building. And she's trying to get me Baker active. And I just said the first thing that come to mind, I said, no, no, no. I didn't ask for any help. I'm just in the parking lot. I'm going to go ahead and walk, walk away. They're like, I was like, you can't beg or act me unless I ask for it. And they're like, well, I guess he's kind of right. And I was like, oh, there it is. And I just, just walked. So I escaped, even though I really needed it. A Baker Act is an involuntary 72-hour hold because you're a danger to yourself or somebody else or suicidal. If somebody's concerned about your well-being, they can call or take you to a hospital or call the police and and say you're a danger to yourself. And then they'll hold you for 72 hours until they uh, clear you through a doctor that says you're safe to reenter society. And I've had that happen to me a couple of times. Being in the hospital and pulling out the IVs and trying to refuse treatment after an overdose you come to and you're trying to get out of there to go get high more. And they Baker Act you. So oh, strap them in. They strap you to the, the bed and you're not leaving. It's just not going to happen. They were trying to get a Baker Act on me and I dodged it. And I just, and my leg's swollen, remind you. And I'm dragging my leg and I'm, I don't know where I'm going to go. My mom lives in Cape Canaveral. I'm, in my head, I'm going to hit the beach and just walk north on the beach until I get to where my mom lives. I'm walking up the beach and I'm looking deranged. I'm sweating. I'm looking crazy. I've just done a lot of lot of methamphetamine, way too much. I don't know if it was my paranoia or I'm pretty sure this happened. But as I'm walking up the boardwalk, like people are looking at me with their kids and they're like pulling their children away from me. I take a seat on the beach. And I'm like peeking through my own arms. I sit there with my arms crossed and looking up. Just you know, I just left my apartment with my pregnant wife run over to Cape Canaveral to get high. They kick me out of the apartment complex. She picks me up, tries to get me Baker acted. I'm just going. I'm again, I'm going nowhere. I have no idea where I'm going, but I'm just going. Only thing I get to compute in my mind is mom lives in Cape Canaveral. You can go there. Somehow or not, I get there and I'm knocking on the door. I'm knocking on the door and nobody's answering. She's not home. But in my head, her, my fiance, Nicole, my mom's boyfriend are in there and I can hear him talking about me and I can hear him talking about me and I can hear him talking about how 
how are they gonna how are they gonna tell me that the baby isn't mine? How are they gonna break this to me? I'm like, what? And I'm pounding on the door. I hear you in there. I hear you in there. And I walk away, come back, sit there, realize I'm out of my mind, delusional, talking to people who aren't there. And my phone is my phone's not on. My phone is is dead. And as I was walking, because I walked a lot this night, I could hear my my girlfriend's relatives, because she's Asian, talking to me in a language I don't understand, an Asian language. But the phone's not even not even on. It's not even powering on. That's the kind of drugs that are out there. I leave that up. I leave my mom's apartment after probably spending two hours out there pounding on the door and collecting my thoughts and then thinking it's real and start walking. And I get stopped by the sheriff. Four cruisers pulled up. I'm on the sidewalk and they kind of just park and they're like right there and they're all kind of keeping their distance, but they're talking to me. And one of the guys I went to high school with and he would run into me. He'd be like, Robbie, what are you doing? You got, he's like, every time he saw me, he was like, next time you're going to jail, like I can't, you know, keep looking the other way. I can't be out in the streets acting like a madman. Like what? And so what I tell these guys in my delusion, I said, you know me, you know, my, my girl's pregnant. You know, I'm about to have my first child. And they just told me that it's not my baby. And I'm freaking out. I was like, that's why I'm like this. And I'm telling them and I'm selling. They, I think they might have, I don't know if they believe me or what, but or I didn't have anything on me. So they couldn't really do anything. And after like going back and forth with them and telling them so elaborate, what I believe to be reality, they just ended up letting me go. They're like, look, go home, be safe. You can't be out here. I'm like, okay. And I thought I just walked into Circle K and asked to use the phone. And she said, Robbie, if you do not leave this store, I'm going to have to call the cops. I said, why are you being like this? What do you mean? She's like, You've been in the store for two hours, falling asleep, bumping into people, asking everybody for their phone and asking them for money. I said, what? Like my life flashed before my eyes. I was like, oh, crap. I had, I had no idea. Like, oh, so I, she lets me use the phone. I called Nicole. I said, you have to come get me. I'm going to go to jail. She said, oh, my God. Okay, I'll come. And I go behind the dumpster because I'm worried the cops. I'm just sitting there behind the dumpster for I don't know how long waiting for, for Nicole to come. And however long later, and it is dark now, however long later, my mom pulls up with her boyfriend. Oh, God. I get in with them. I'm like, take me home. They're not like, you're not going home. Your leg is going to, you have an infection in your leg. You need to go to the hospital, this and that. And they get my leg checked out. And I'm being super friendly with all the staff and everything, but I stink like really bad. They don't even want to touch me. I don't think they would touch me. And they just looked at it from afar and held their nose and was like, here's the antibiotics. My mom and her boyfriend are are begging the doctors to Baker Act me, but I'm happy go lucky. I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. You know, they're trying to get me Baker. I don't want to hurt myself. I'm just, you know, I get high. I admit that, but like begging me to go to treatment to get help. And I wasn't going for it. They allowed me to smoke a cigarette while they're still in there, you know, pleading with the, the hospital to get me Baker Acted. And there's a one security guy out there with me and he's got, he doesn't want nothing to do with the situation. Kind of watching, kind of not. I'm smoking the cigarette in the wheelchair. And I'm looking back and I'm like, as soon as this guy turns his head one more time, I'm gone. So I did that. As soon as he he would watch me, then he would like kind of mosey around in a little circle and get his eyes back on me. As soon as he did a turn, I hit the bushes. <laughs> I hobbled over to the bushes and just hid there behind the bushes. And uh, I hear my mom and her boyfriend and the security, and they're all screaming my name. Oh, uh, Robert, where are you? And I see him driving and I just, I start walking 
start walking down the street, but I'm not on the street. I'm like off in the the treed gutter area to where I'm out of sight. So I escaped another Baker Act. My little sister lives in Palm Bay. My dad lives in O'Galley. Now I'm going south because I ran into mom. She's trying to Baker Act me. That's not working. Time to hit the other end of the county on foot with a swollen leg, dragging my leg, picking up every single piece of trash and envelope I see on the side of the road, thinking hopefully there's some money in it or something. Just complete madness. Complete madness. I just walked and walked, and I'm thinking in my head, I was like, I got to be getting close to Melbourne. I get to the 7-Eleven. I'm like, hey, where am I? Uh, you're in Rockledge. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> God. I got another, I don't know how many hours of hobbling to do. They're like, We're going to call you right. We're going to call you somebody. Like all the cops, cops come there. One cruiser comes there. He's like, oh, you're the guy that left the hospital AMA um, against medical advice. I'm like, no, that wasn't me. I was like, they, they wanted me to stay. I didn't want to even be there. Like, whatever. And he's going to give me a ride. I'm like, hey, I'm trying to talk to this guy the whole time. He doesn't want nothing to do with me, which is still miles away from where any, any stops and he pops the door. He said, get out. This is the end of my jurisdiction. So I start hobbling again and I'm not going to make it. I'm not making it anywhere. I take a seat on the sidewalk, try to gather my energy, hop back up, try to walk, make it maybe 20 more feet and have to hit, hit the sidewalk again. I'm like, this is it. This is the, and now the sun's up. The sun had came up. You're on US one. Cars are flying by, full traffic. You're gonna die laying on a sidewalk on US one with nothing. Like this is the way to go, isn't it? There's just nothing around. I can't move. I'm just getting baked by the sun. I'm dehydrated, haven't eaten, and I, I just can't move. I can't. I can't even stand up. And this old couple walked past me and they walked up and they're the one, nothing to do with me either, but they're looking at a kid dying <laughs> and they, what can we do? I said, can I use your phone? Just make one call. They said, no, but we'll call for you. I said, okay. I gave them the number. They called my dad. He didn't answer, but they left a voicemail and I'm, and they just kept walking and I'm like, well, this is it. I'm going to die right here. I don't know. And talking to people who aren't there talking, like thinking just completely out of my mind. And my dad pulls up. Robert, what the hell are you doing? Get in, the, get in the van. What the hell? I said, I can't. You got to come pick me up. Can't move. What the hell? He comes, picks me up, throws me in the van, and took me to my little sister's house. And she let me stay there. I say that and I tell that story. That is what that life has to offer. What kind of life is that? Like, what are you, what am, what am I doing with myself? But that's the reality of the life I was living. And I say that because, because today I could, I was that, but today I have a life that means something The where people are calling me, right? People call me for help or, or for advice or to be there for them. When I wasn't a person that people could even communicate with, that people had to close the door, that people had to pull their children away or to hide from, or to just not even want to touch or communicate with, my voice was not heard. There was no... I would open my mouth and I would say words. And even if they were good, meaningful words, no ears were attentive. Nobody wanted to listen. And for good reason. Who would want to listen to a deranged person? Today, I can look back and say, that's who I was, right? And today, I'm a man who can be there for his daughter, be a good dad, be a good husband, right? Be a husband. Marriage. That's that's crazy. So we just, me and my, my fiance just... Got a mortgage on a home in a gated community. I've been clean three and a half years. Three and a half years. 
um, of living right, choosing to do right and doing the right thing, we can build a life. It's possible because there was a time where I felt there was there was no hope. There was no life. And, and you know what? Robbie Gray is just meant to be a gray, which is prisons, substance abuse and mediocrity at best. And that's just the family name. That's just what it is. And that's fine. As long as I do a little bit better than mom and dad, I want that life. That's bullshit. You know, through Space Coast Recovery, through love, compassion, through my sponsor, 12 Steps, I found hope, life, and opportunity. And it was scary as hell. And it was the hardest thing to ever do, to ever look at, to ever to have to take an honest look at yourself. But it's the most worthwhile thing I've ever done and I'll ever have done in my life. To go from hopeless and not being heard. In a short amount of time, knowing that opportunity is there if I'm willing to do the work and to dedicate to it and to for people in my life to want me around. Because I was a man that people couldn't have around, even if they did want to be a part of my life. But I was always blaming and pointing the finger and blaming circumstances and my upbringing. And, and there's some validation to it. So that makes it easy, right? There's a little bit of validation to it. But sooner or later, it's like, I had to decide that I could either be part of that cycle of my grandma, my mom, and me, and what I was about to do to Nora, my daughter. I could have easily just been a part of that cycle. And people would probably get it. They would understand. It makes sense. Or I could choose something else and believe that something else is possible, that I could forge a new path and a new life through God and through others who have been through similar experiences and know the way. But I was never open-minded enough to, to take a, a hand. You know, earlier I said that I would always, I'd always look back and say, man, if somebody would have just gave me an opportunity or just grabbed me by the neck and said, dude, this is the way you do this, do that. Then, I, then, then maybe it wouldn't have been that. So I'm victimizing myself. There was always opportunity, but I was in so much pain. I wasn't able to, to see it, right? What was the moment like when you became open-minded, to use your word, open-minded to finally understanding this is not the life that I want? I don't want to be the, quote, gray of Robbie Gray. I think it was a series of things. But having a daughter, the old clinical supervisor here, um, I thought she hated me and I thought she wanted to send me to prison. When I took it and she was kind of pulling the strings of my life, you know, a little bit. And I was thinking she had ill intentions. But when I really stopped back, reflect and looked, I firmly believed that this lady wanted nothing but for Robbie to live a life clean and sober. Just for that. She wanted nothing in return. She just wanted to see me do well. And I believed I truly when I looked at that, I said, this lady doesn't want that's it. Their entire motive is to see me succeed and to do whatever she can to help me succeed. I believe that it it renewed my trust in humanity. Because like I said, it was Robbie against the world. I might entertain some people for a short time, but I didn't really trust and believe in anybody. And through one person really believing in me and just wanting to help me for nothing in return, it kind of unlocked the rest of the world that there might be something good left in this world. Cause I wrote off the world for a long time and I thought there was nothing good in it and there was nothing good for me. And I, there were people, so they're trustworthy to an extent, but eh, not all the way. And I wasn't about to, to test it to find out because 
it hurts. So I say do whatever it takes to find that one person. It just takes one, and they're out there. There's good people, kind-hearted, loving people that just want you to heal and to succeed and to do better or whatever it is that you need. They just want that for you simply to watch you recover. We'll never find it if we can't accept it. We have to be open and to look for it. And it's scary as hell and it sucks to open that that pain to the world. Nothing good will ever have the opportunity to come through it either. Nothing bad will come through, but nothing good will either. There are people who are afraid of, say, homeless people or people walking around like you kind of having their own conversations with themselves and just like the parents who pulled their children away, right? But everybody needs that one special person to help them. So how do those people who are who are afraid kind of learn not to be afraid and maybe be more compassionate? You just remember that everybody's a person. You know, you can't speak for everybody and everything, but most people just need love. And most people had a lot of lack of love. And people that are walking around like that, you never know what what it is that they've gone through to their life experience that have made them and led them to, to where they're at that day. And, you know, we treat people accordingly to what we see. And sometimes we don't see someone at first glance that needs love, compassion, and empathy in the ear. And so we treat them for what we see. And we treat them maybe as crazy or, or we're scared of them. And, and we're doing nothing but, but providing more evidence to their beliefs against the world, right? You never know when what someone's been through and every person deserves an equal chance for love and unity and empathy and understanding. And you never know. There's never a magical thing to say or the right thing to say. It's not. You never know when the right timing of what you say or when you say it or how you or what your feelings are towards someone and that that door of, of love and compassion when it's the right time when somebody will hear it is going to get exactly what they need. You're right. You know, Deborah, she was, she'll be my story before yours gives backpacks, you know, full of um, things that like a female needs. Um, And then backpacks with things filled with what a man needs. And also with um, the card, the space coast recovery, because sometimes maybe they don't know where they can go and be welcome. But to at least have a card that maybe you'll put in your pocket, you know, and then the day will come where you pull it out and be like Space Coast Recovery. This is where I need to go. But everyone has a story like you just said. You know, I totally agree with 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 you and what you're saying. And and I've learned that. Um, so my sisters and dealt with all the same things through my childhood as me and she hasn't done She's the youngest child, so she hasn't dealt with it the best. And she's still active in addiction and she's out there in California. Um, and I always try to force feed her recovery for the longest time. And, you know, I just learned along the way that that never worked for me. But something I can do and what I do with her and, and other people I meet in the world is just like cause she would come and I, to my house and I would open the door to her and then she would like cause a big blow up and try to start an argument to make a reason to escape and leave. You know, I said, you know what, Becca, you can go. It's not going to be because of something that I said or you did, you know, that 
you're trying to turn this. I said, you could do all that, but I just want you to know when you're ready, this door and a bed, food, and all the resources I have in my life are available to you when you're ready. And the same thing with like people I run into um, in the world. If I see it's obvious that they have substance abuse or something like that, I just say, hey, I'm not saying you need to do anything, but if you ever know anybody or you're ever interested in wanting a new way of life, take this card and, you know, I'll do anything I can for you. And that's it. You know, just saying, hey, there is another way. And if you if when you're willing and ready, we're here for you. Yeah, I think what you just said is perfect. And all honesty, can you share with us then how Space Coast Recovery became that resource for you? Definitely. Um, Space Coast Recovery has been nothing but a blessing and changed my life and turned my life into something I never imagined it would be. I graduated um, and about nine months later, I noticed one of my peers from when I was in treatment was working here just one night a week. And I was like, wow, I didn't know they did that. I didn't know they would hire us or me or anybody. So I just kind of hesitantly like extended myself to the supervisor at the time. I said, hey, you know, just very shy and timid with it. But if there ever was, and I'd be interested in helping out here. And she was like, okay, how about this weekend? I was like, whoa. Well, let me think about it. Let me think about it. And I walked away. And about 30 seconds later, I said, yes. And I walked back and I said, you know what? I thought about it. Let's do that. And then I never experienced the empowerment from another person that Space Coast Recovery and and Barbie and all the staff here, the, the facility, the most empowering place and people I've ever experienced in my life. And I'll forever be grateful for this facility, for that, for believing in me and for believing in people and to provide them with an opportunity for growth. And that's what this place does. And I needed that more than I ever knew I needed it. And to be empowered and to say you can and that's a great idea. And, yeah, try that out. Even maybe if they thought that was a crazy idea, go try it out. Yeah, you deserve you do that. That's And it sparked my spirit and, and opened my eyes to a a beautiful life and um, to be given the opportunity to do that for others. That's the greatest thing I've ever experienced. And I get to experience every single day. I think that's amazing. It it puts a smile on my face as I sit here. Let me ask you this. You um, didn't trust anyone, right? So what made you bring down your wall and trust Barbie and everyone at Space Coast Recovery here in Brevard County. When I really just took a step back and said, what do, what are their intentions? I'm real good at picking apart things and finding where the the um, ill intent is or the lack of character or, you know, all that. And that's what I share with these guys all the time. You know, when I they get upset and they feel like people are trying to manipulate their lives or just, I'm like, what do you think we do this for? You think I just, we get off on like telling you, you can't hang out with this person or this or that, or, you know, what do you, what do you think the intent is? I said, really what it boils down to is these people just want to help so I can continue to be the, the person I've always been, or I can just accept it, you know, and I can just allow, allow it's on me to allow people into my life and to speak into my life. You can have the greatest guides and sponsors and mentors in the world. But if we're not allowing people to speak into our lives, it doesn't matter. 
Right. Now, there are people listening who are inspired by your story. Taking the first step is scary because you don't really know what to expect. Can you share with us your journey from when you first went to Space Coast Recovery to ease maybe people's anxiety about doing something new? And this isn't the, the greatest advice, I think, but this is how it works for me. So I just share my experience. I said, you know what, Robbie, you did 28 years, 28 years of life. And look what you got. And I just take an honest look, you know, jail, jail, rehab, every single person I loved and care about in my life that I wanted, that I truly loved and cared about. I did nothing but harm them. I've been a hindrance in their life. That's not good enough. 28 years of that, and that's what I got. I'm going to give one year, one year. That's it. That's all. I'm not willing to surrender my entire forever, but I, I'll give you a year trial run, and I'll do everything, and all suggestions will be followed, and I'll keep the same job, and I'm going to see how I feel. In that year's time of just surrendering and doing it as suggested, my relationship was better than it's ever been. My job, I was I was showing up to work every day. My bosses wanted me around. I got multiple raises. People wanted me around. My friends counted on me. They wanted to spend time with me. Every aspect of my life was much better than it was in 28 years of doing it my way. And then when I had that evidence and really took the time to look at it, what do you have to lose? And if you're going to do it, why not? Just, just for, Just for giggles, right? Just Give it an honest effort, the best you can do. Because most of us, we don't do, we don't have that in us anymore. We, we attempt something and we kind of, you know, we tiptoe around it. And, and that's what an addict does, right? Because we're scared of, of whatever it is. There's fear. So, and then we want to write it off. I always want to write off the program and act like it didn't work. But I, so give it an honest effort. Go do the best you can and see how you feel after some time. And if you really do that, everybody who's ever done that honestly and thoroughly and dove in will tell you that their life has got tremendously better. That's great. You said one word there that I think is really impactful and really important. And it was surrender. You basically had to surrender yourself And I think that is a huge word that honestly had never crossed my mind before. So I learned something. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty through this whole thing. It's very raw, genuine, and happy that you are where you are um, today. Barbie is the CEO of Space Coach Recovery, a program that saved my life, saved a lot of my best friends' lives and continues to save lives and given many people who've gone through the program an opportunity to be a part of the program and to continue the the cycle of recovery. Um, And that's how it works. And Barbie's been nothing but selfless and compassionate. And she's a great leader and done everything she can to the best facility and the best tools and resources and the best team to provide um, recovery for this area. I got nothing but the utmost respect and love for her, for everything she's done in my life, my life and and many people in my life. That's quite the introduction, Barbie, and I am honored 
honored to have you as a guest as well. So please share with us um, your resources, Space Coast Recovery, anything else that you would like to share with us about you, because it sounds like you are one heck of an incredible lady. I love to hear that. Well, thank you. And Robbie, thank you so much. I'll tell you, it's stories like Robbie that keeps me motivated to stay here and do what I do. I mean, I've seen Robbie from the minute he walked in the store as a client to graduating from college, Nora being one of the best counselors here. I'm just really proud of him. And, you know, there's a lot of stories like that around. We have really great programs here. We have our, you know, licensed level three residential program. We're licensed by the state of Florida. We're accredited by CARF. We also have a level one outpatient treatment programs. We do that in Titusville and Coco and Melbourne. We do the DUI program and we're also into this new, an exciting new outpatient program as well, just to help as many people in the community here as possible. That's great. And so from your perspective, what is it like when someone comes to Space Coast Recovery if they are Again, like I talked about with Robbie, having anxiety about taking that step. How do you reassure them um, through your resources that that they've made the right decision and you're here to help? Everybody that walks through that door is broken. It breaks our hearts. So what we do is we just surround them with love. We let them know how important they are. We let them know that we care Um, Like Robbie said, you know, we have a lot of rules in place, but those rules are there for a reason because it works. It just works. I'm blessed with such an amazing staff here at Space Coast Recovery. We have one of the best teams. We all have one mission, and that's just to help these people out there that are suffering. Scary out there now. The drugs out there are scary. It's not about getting high or going to jail. It's about staying alive. We just work really hard at just making them, you know, we tell them we we love them until they can love themselves. Now, why would somebody choose Space Coast Recovery versus maybe a different recovery center? What makes you distinct? One, we're the best at what we do. One of the requirements is they all have to get jobs. So we're not a lockdown facility. All of our treatments done in the evenings, you know, everybody... It's a very structured routine. Everybody's up out of their bed with their beds made by 8 a.m. Um, they go to work. They come home. Dinner's at 5 every night. We do all of our groups in the evening, 6 to 7.30. They're required to do four AA or NA meetings a week. And then we have lights out. We have curfew and then lights out. And then the day starts again. And the guys, we teach them life skills you know, they all have chores they have to do. You know, people come in here not knowing how to cook. I've actually learned how to cook here because the guys have to learn how to cook. <laughs> and you have to cook and you have to cook for 25 people. So everybody gets a, you know, an opportunity to um, just, you know, the life skills. Some of them, you know, have never been taught before. Um, we had one client that he wasn't doing his chore and I asked him why. And he never saw anybody use a broom. He didn't even know how to sweep a floor. So, you know, you have to meet them where they're at when they come in and just help them grow and learn. How do you provide 
information to the community, education. I think that's really the word I'm looking for, education to the community, whether it be, say, our law enforcement on better ways to handle when they see somebody like Robbie on the side of the road, how to better help them, or even the general public. What type of information, education, classes do you provide? Well, we have um, our website is spacecoastrecovery.com. We have open interviews every Tuesday between two and four where people can walk in off the streets. We, we, We don't accept insurance here. We take the homeless, the uninsured, the unemployed, Um, and the indigent. Um, We're partially funded by the Department of Children and Families. So they just pay $150 a week um, for their treatment here. That includes the room, their board, all their meals. We have liaisons in the jail. If anybody's incarcerated, um, they set up uh, phone interviews with the clinical team to come in for treatment. And you are a nonprofit as well. We are a nonprofit, yes. How do you get your funding? Like, let's say um, somebody listening is like, wow, I really, I, I want to help them so they can help others. How do they go about that? They can go on our website or our Facebook page at Space Coast Recovery and hit the big red donate button. You can't miss it, right? You can't miss it. And we also, we purchased, uh, two years ago, we pur- purchased a transitional house. And that's pretty exciting for us, too. It's got Caddy Corner from um, Space Coast Recovery. It's 1138 Peachtree. And we um, applied for a grant with Community Housing Initiative. And the city of Cocoa is working with us. And we're going to begin renovations for that. And that's going to house um, five gentlemen that have satisfactorily graduated from our program. It's a five-bedroom, three-bath house. And we're excited about that work. It'll be far certified. And, you know, for some of these guys, they, you know, don't have a place to go once they graduate from our um, program successfully. They don't really, you know, it's hard. There's a lot of different challenges out there to find housing. So this transitional house is going to help them when they continue their journey in recovery. Great. And are your clients men then, just men? Yes. Yes. Our, Our residential program is just all males. Um, our outpatients are co-ed, though. So what's the difference then? Like, well, how outpatient, how does that work? Outpatient, well, we have, through licensing, outpatient is required an hour, hour and a half of substance abuse treatment a week. We do that through the Florida Safety Council. Anybody that gets a DUI in the state, state of Florida that, um, that has to seek treatment, they choose us as their provider in groups in Titusville and Cocoa and Melbourne. And then we're, we're beginning our level one outpatient treatment. Um, we're probably going to start them at two groups, groups a week. This would be clients that really don't need a residential treatment facility, but whether or not like their employer is saying, you know, you have to complete some kind of an outpatient treatment before you can come back to work. Um, everybody knows somebody. Addiction does not discriminate. So there's different companies that, you know, they're, they need to send their employees for out an outpatient program, which it won't, wouldn't disrupt their lives. Wonderful. And you are so right. Um, addiction does not discriminate. If you are not um, trying to overcome addiction yourself, chances are you know someone, whether it's a family member or a friend. And I'm hoping this episode today um, kind of gives you 
a first step in knowing that Space Coast Recovery is here. You do have an option. And if you if they were to call Space Coast Recovery, weren't able to come to your facility, you have other resources you direct them to. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, we do. Okay, that's perfect. Well, I'm just very proud of the program. I feel honored, actually honored to come to work every day here. Well, we are blessed to have you as part of our community. So thank you for all you do. And how long has Space Coast Recovery been a part of Brevard County? Space Coast Recovery was formerly known as Community Treatment Center, and it was established in 1969. So it's been around for a long time. We rebranded about three years ago to Space Coast Recovery because the Space Coast is the number one Googled um, words in the nation. I just want to say thank you for uh, allowing me to be a part of this. Anybody out there that is lost in addiction or alcoholism, um, there is a way. And myself um, is living proof and plenty, plenty of other people are living proof. I know guys that have gotten clean and I know a guy who got clean at the same time of me as me and is a, is a millionaire today. That's, that's crazy to me. It still baffles me, but, and there's business owners and family members and guys that came from the bottom living in the woods with no place to go. And they just decided one day they had enough and it's possible. And we, we do recover together. Space Coast Recovery in Brevard County understands that you are not alone. If you are struggling with addiction, Space Coast Recovery will welcome you with open arms to provide the love, compassion, hope, and resources to enter recovery. Please reach out to Space Coast Recovery today. They can be reached at www.spacecoastrecovery.com or call them at 321-632-5958. Again, that's 321-632-5958. And take your first step to recovery. Together is really important because you are not alone. And thank you, Robbie. Recovery date, September 18th, 2018. Sounds like a great reason to have cake as well. And Barbie with Space Coast Recovery, I thank both of you for being my special guest today. I am here if you need anything. All right. Thanks so much, Jen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My name is Jen Lee. I am creator and host of I Need Blue. My episodes can be found at www.ineedblue.net. Plus, uh, my episodes are found on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Remember, you are stronger than you think. Thank you.